Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? This is as far as we've made it so far. And as we dive into Paul's second prayer for the Ephesian church, I want us to consider prayer specifically this morning. Theologian John Stott said this, One of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. Robert, Robert Murray McShane wrote a century and a half earlier, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And so I have a question for you. If you're a Christian here this morning, Christian, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? And if you were to take a 30,000 foot view of your prayer life, what would that tell you about you? Would you be burdened with the fact that you feel like your prayers are ringing hollow, that you're talking to a ceiling and not talking to the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer? Would you acknowledge the fact that too often your prayers are desperate laundry lists, that we treat God more like a genie in a bottle, not the God who will give us all that we need, more than we can even ask or think? Or maybe when we think of those two examples, the ringing hollow or the genie in a bottle type prayers, maybe we think that's the best scenario because when we think of our prayer life, we can think of very little. There's very little to acknowledge because the absence of prayer in our lives. And maybe you're afraid to ask the honest question of saying, when was the last time I praised God for who he is, not just what I received from him? What about the last time we've prayed and confessed our brokenness in light of his holiness? When was the last time I thanked God for all that he has done for me and blessed me with? When was the time I went and asked him for something and not just what I thought I needed, but truly things of eternal consequences? A friend, I want to encourage you, I am not throwing mud. The reason those questions feel, I hope, honest is because they are honest questions that I've asked far too often. I think prayer is a good litmus test of how we're doing spiritually. And in that being said, it's a good litmus test, but it's also a discouraging litmus test at times. And so each of us here, if if you follow Christ, I am confident that you want to improve in your prayer life. Not as some religious tick box, but as a true privilege, a true gift that it is. And so uh, let's not squander that gift that we have in being able to go to God in prayer. Now maybe you're here right now and you're thinking, you know what, I pre-read the passage, which I hope you did. That's always a good thing to do. I pre-read the passage, and this has got to be one of the most encouraging passages I've ever uh, read. And Aaron is starting with such a, a downer. You know, how bad I am at prayer. Well, I agree with you. This is such an encouraging passage, and it's especially encouraging in light of our weaknesses and the challenges we can have as sinful beings. Ephesians three fourteen to 21 and is an example of what prayer can and should look like for us and a prayer that we can pray for ourselves to grow in this area and a prayer that we can pray for others. And so this was a letter written to 
the churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, but this is God's word for us today. So let's hear God's word. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You've likely heard this passage before. If you've been with us for any length of time, uh, you know that we start and end our services with scripture. We begin our services officially with a call to worship. We, we enter on God's terms, a call to worship from scripture, and we close our service with a benediction, a blessing or a prayer from scripture for us as we go into our weeks. And so this is one of the benedictions that we often read. It's one of my favorites. They're all good, but it's a really good one. This is an important moment in Ephesians, in the letter of Ephesians. This is sort of like the hinging moment, the fulcrum point in the whole book. We've just come out of three chapters of rich, deep, heavy, and beautiful theology. As we go through chapter one, we see that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his children. As we get into chapter 2, we see that we were dead in our sin. Things were hopeless. But because of God's great mercy, he is rich in mercy, and he made us alive together with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly places. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then we see that this gospel, this good news that we were dead and now we're made alive is really the mystery of the gospel that it's not just for one people group. This is the good news for all people. The mystery of the gospel is that we can be reconciled with God and reconciled with one another. That all people who would turn and trust in Christ alone for salvation can know this peace with God and have the opportunity for radical peace with one another. Paul then goes on to write that that peace together would be evident because believers of every tribe, nation, and tongue would come together in visible gatherings, assemblies of God's people, and that that would be the church, and that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known even to the heavenly places. Man, if that doesn't light a fire in your bones, I don't know what does. That, this is a ramp, three chapters of good news I don't know if we have any, you can actually raise your hand. Any roller coaster fans here? Fans of roller coasters. Okay, like six people. Well, this is not going to be helpful for you. But I think of Ephesians like a roller coaster. When I was younger, I always thought, you know, the the best part of the roller coaster is like the drop. 
right? That, that thrill, that first initial drop. I feel like the older I get, now it's been a while since I've been on a roller coaster for various reasons in the world, but the, that first climb up to that first drop is like amazing to me. Just every click that you hear of the gears or whatever, the chains engaging, click, click, click as you go up the ramp, you're just getting more excited. Every click you hear, you know the drop's gonna be that much better. Now, if you hate roller coasters, this illustration accomplishes nothing for you. But take it from me. That's such a like, oh, it's going to be good, right? And you're climbing up. That's what I feel like the first three chapters of Ephesians is like, click, click, click. We just keep getting this one up, one up, one up. It just keeps getting better and better and better and better. And then all of a sudden, the drop happens. And that's the second three chapters of Ephesians, which is thrilling. Uh, The second three chapters of Ephesians is direct application. Okay, because of these truths, how must we live? And this section here, verses 14 to 21 of chapter 3, is kind of that moment where you're hanging. If you're in the, one of the front cars of the roller coaster, you've click, click, clicked, like, you're ready to explode with excitement, and you're kind of hanging, and you're about to make this drop. That's sort of the moment that we're in, in Ephesians. And so as we get there, click, click, click. Paul launches into his prayer with, for this reason, because of everything that's come before, For this reason. If you remember at the very beginning of chapter 3, he started with, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Then he kind of gets sidetracked and keeps talking about the mystery of the gospel, which is great. It was a great sidetrack. But then he comes back here in verse 14. For this reason, now he's motivated to pray because of all that's come before, because of these rich gospel truths, because of the click, click, click of this roller coaster of theology. And I wonder, even before we dive in here, is this our response to the gospel? When we think about what we've gone through over the last few months, does that get us excited? Does that draw us to prayer and praise? Does that make us want to pray? This is the example Paul gives for us. For this reason, because of all that's come, he bows his knees before the Father. The glorious truths of the gospel drive him to prayer. And so I pray that this would be true for us. I believe this is what Paul prays for the Ephesians. That this truth would be real. That as we read profound truths, even if we've heard them a thousand times, it would feel like we're climbing a roller coaster, getting ready for the drop. And not that we're on a road trip through Saskatchewan. Hopefully that contrast is helpful. But this is, this is crazy when we think about the good news. Either how that applies to us in our own hearts, how that applies to the church, how this applies to the world. Let's never get tired of the gospel. As we consider gospel truths, the good news, let that draw you to prayer and praise. And so our first point this morning is Petition is just a fancy way of saying to ask for something. Petition. We'll see petition and praise. But as we dive in, let's just pray quickly to God and ask for his help. God, we are inadequate of understanding the depths of the gospel. But God, as we consider these truths, these glorious truths, would you affect our hearts in a way that only you can, that as we Consider these petitions and this praise that our 
hearts would be ignited to love you more as we know you more. God, we thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so that's exactly what our big idea is this morning. The more we know God, the more we'll praise God. The more we know God, the more we'll praise God. That as we consider these truths, our hearts are lit on fire for God. And so let's look at Paul's petition for the Ephesians. Again, a fancy way of saying to ask for something or to present a request. Now, if you're anything like me too, when we present requests to God, sometimes it can feel like you're just backing up a dump truck and just offloading, you know, what can you do for me? Paul doesn't do it this way. He gives us a good example of what a true petition should look like. like. He models a better way, and he begins humbly. Again, because of the gospel, what has come before, he's motivated to pray. Even the fact that he's praying, period, demonstrates that humility. Not praying doesn't just say nothing. It says, I can do this on my own. Nothing screams arrogance like prayerlessness. But this is not true for Paul. He comes to God humbly. We see even his posture is humble. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now we have no scriptural mandate for the physical position you must be in as you pray. Maybe you like to pray while you walk or kneel or pace or sit or stand or drive. Eyes open, of course. Uh, laying in your bed. Right? There's no mandate. There's nothing more holy about kneeling. But it does demonstrate humility. And so, just a, an aside here. If you've never tried kneeling to pray, I would encourage you to do it. Not as some ritualistic thing. Not as some legalistic thing. But I found it can help you focus. Uh, if, as practical as that is. There's something humbling about kneeling to pray, and it helps you focus. When you, if you're like me, your mind wanders, and you think, why am I kneeling? Oh, yeah, I'm praying, and then you keep going. So that has nothing to do with what this sermon is about, but you can have that one for free. Uh, but Paul approaches God on God's terms. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being according to the riches of his glory. That's the terms he approaches on. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he immediately answers the question, why? Why would this prayer for uh, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being? Again, verse 17, we get a so that. Paul uses a lot of so that's in Ephesians so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is what we need. We need more Christ. We need more Christ. And this is what Paul prays for dozens of times already through Ephesians. Paul has written in Christ or some version of. We don't have to go far. Chapter 1, once he's done saying hello, verse 3. He says, God has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, God has chosen us in him. Verse 5, God has adopted us through Jesus. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. 
Verse 9, God's purpose was set forth in Christ. Verse 10, God's plan to unite all things is in him, in Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance and have been predestined. You get the idea. But within a few verses, we see that this glorious message of the gospel centers on Christ. We need more Christ. These are the privileges and truths of the gospel. God's work in redeeming humanity centers on Christ. He is our hope. You may be here and you've heard of Jesus before and you may think a lot of different things. Maybe you say, okay, he was a prophet, he was a guru, he was a good guy. But Jesus is so much more than that. Jesus is God's only son who God sent into the world to save sinners. We have rebelled, all humanity, we've rebelled against God. We've gone our own way. We've said, I want to be king. I want to be queen, not God. My way. And God knew that we would fail. He knew that we would sin. And instead of us having to sacrifice animals or do other things to to pay for our sins, to work our way to salvation, we could never work our way to salvation because we've sinned. It's tainted. So God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to live as a man, fully God and fully man, and live the perfect life that you and I could never live, yet die the death that you and I deserve, to pay the penalty for sin, to satisfy God's wrath. And Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He defeated death, demonstrating that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied And making a way that if we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation, we could know this peace. Because then when God looked at Jesus, he saw our sin. And when he looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. If you've never heard this truth before or never responded in this way, please come talk to us. This is the best news you could ever hear. Sin is the biggest problem in the world. And Jesus is the only solution. And Christian, don't tune this out either. This is the click, click, click of the roller coaster as we consider the good news of the gospel. We don't graduate from the gospel. These truths are already true. We are sinners saved by grace. But we need to know these truths more. And this is what Paul prays for the Ephesians. He doesn't stop there. Again, he picks up in verse 17 that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. These descriptions, this uh, long list of breadth and length and height and depth These are to communicate the the grandeur of Christ's love, the impossibility, the beyond comprehension of it all. And so one of the keys to this passage that Paul prays for the Ephesians is also arguably the most confusing part of the passage. He prays that they would comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's saying, comprehend the incomprehensible. Is this a paradox? Is this a contradiction? Well, it would be if we had to do it on our own. But we see that he's praying for strength 
that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. By God's help, we can grasp even a picture of these depths. We can comprehend Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. You may know the feeling of of an, 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 an endless thing that you're trying to search for. If, uh, if you're a reader, if you like to read books, you know something of uh, a very trite example of this feeling. You know, you have this to-read pile, and you say, I'm going to read this book. And every book you read gives you three more books to read in it because it references other books. And, and then, so, sure, you've ticked one off the list, but then three more have been added. And it's this, the more you dig into books, the more you realize that you need more books, <laughs> the more you realize uh, that you, the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. And it's this cyclical thing. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't read books, right? Or think of outer space. It is beyond comprehension. It is beyond our understanding. But that doesn't mean we can't know anything about space. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to know about space. And again, these are tiny examples of what we're talking about here. The more we know Christ, the more we know that his love is bigger and grander than we could have ever imagined. And so the more we know, in a sense, the more we know that we don't know. And that's okay. We've become accustomed to having all the answers at our fingertips. If you want to become an expert, you know, enough Googling will get you close enough. And so it feels counter to us. And maybe this is true for everybody, but I think there's some people here that are even more on that kind of skeptical side or that cynical side or that I need to know, I need to have something I can hold on to that I can plumb the depths of. And I have good news and bad news. The bad news is you can't. This is beyond our comprehension. The good news is it's beyond our comprehension. Our God is that big. How sad it would be if we said, oh yeah, I can... I can describe the love of Christ. I got it. I got it down. And that would be, in one sense, that sounds nice. I I get it. That sounds like, oh, that would be pretty cool. But that's beyond us. Even after 10,000 hours, we cannot plumb the depths or even scratch the surface of Christ's love for us. Our God is that big, and we shouldn't want it any other way. And then we see the goal of this comprehension, the goal of this understanding maybe equally confusing. Because then to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, this is also a mystery. But God gives us his spirit to encourage us, to convict us, to sanctify us. And so our response to the gospel must be to strive to live a holy or set-apart life. We are saved not by good works, but for good works, as we considered in chapter 2. And so just as Paul prays for them, we should pray that this is true for ourselves and for others. That by beholding Christ, we would change. Matt Papa, in that book, Look and Live, he talks about how beholding is better than behaving. But by beholding, it will lead to behaving. We just need more Christ. We need to catch a bigger view of who Christ is, and that will change 
everything about our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so we need more of Christ. We need to behold this greater glory and it will change everything. And so we need to pray this for ourselves and we need to pray this for one another. If you're a member of this church, you have promised to pray for one another. Pray this. Pray that our church would grow in comprehending the unsearchably deep, immeasurably long, unfathomably broad, and impossibly high love of Christ. Pray that our beholding would make us more like Christ. That by beholding Christ, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another for his glory. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. We see that prayers like this give us a much wider view a much wider lens than simply praying for situations or issues. It is good to pray for situations and issues. But I love Paul's example of prayer here, a petition with eternal consequences, a petition of unfathomable hope. And so praying like this and grasping truths like this give us a bigger view of God. We see that theology, the study or knowledge of God done right should lead to doxology or praise. The more we know God, the more we'll praise God. J.I. Packer writes, theology that does not lead to doxology is nothing but bad theology. What Paul writes about here, what we see in Ephesians, this is good theology. These are good truths about who God is and what he has done for us. And we'll see that Paul's prayer, his petition that he lays out for the Ephesians here, that they would comprehend Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, turns to praise. And that's our second point this morning, praise, petition and praise. We see that Paul closes with a benediction, with a doxology, blessing and praise. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask Or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Real, honest prayer. Trust that God will act. Do we believe the power of God? Do we believe the power of prayer? Do our prayer lives reflect that understanding that God can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. There is nothing we could do in an entire lifetime of work that could compare to what God can do and what God will do through prayer. God wants to hear us and he wants to answer not only that, he can do more than we can ask or imagine. And this isn't only exceeding our expectations. It's even praying when we don't have words. When we're in our weakness, Romans 8 says the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words.
God will work for his glory and for our good. This is important. I want you to hear this. This does not mean he will just promote your prayers. If you pray for a Honda Civic, uh, him doing more than you can ask or imagine doesn't mean you get a Tesla. That's not how God works. He will not just promote your prayers beyond your expectations. He can do more than you can ask or think. And more than you can ask or think might be the opposite of what you asked for. God is not a genie who leans on our fickle desires. But he is working for his glory and for your good, your spiritual, eternal good. And so what a privilege we have to pray and go to God knowing that he will work for his glory and for our good, that he can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And this is according to the power at work within us. Think about that. God's power at work within us. Romans 8 again says, God gives us his spirit, the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead. Kevin DeYoung writes, this is not a little nine-volt battery of spiritual power. This is an entire nuclear power plant of divine might. Again, do our prayer lives reflect the power that we know God has and the power that we know his spirit has in us? You see, the more that we know God, the more we'll praise God. And this is what Paul does. He prays that the Ephesians would know more God. If we truly grasp these truths, how could we not praise God? How could we not respond by saying to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations? To give glory is to attribute worth. We give glory all the time. You may think you're a bad worshiper. You're not. You're a great worshiper. We give glory all the time. We constantly worship. Now, where do you give your glory? Where and how do you attribute worth? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What occupies your attention? What makes you the most joyful? What makes you the most angry? What makes you the most anxious? These kinds of questions help us see who or what we give ultimate glory to. One author wrote, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. We are amazing worshipers. You are an amazing worshiper. But we just have terrible aim. We just have terrible aim. So how do we grow in this? Well, we grow in this by beholding a greater glory. By having a greater love. And so as our knowledge of God grows our desire for these idols in our lives should shrink. Our communion with God should crowd out communion with sin. And it works both ways. If there's sin in your life that you refuse to kill, it's going to work the other way. J.C. Ryle writes, prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke prayer. And so take a real, honest look at your life. Where do you attribute worth? And pray for God's help. Pray that he would work in your heart, that you would behold a greater glory, that you would comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
consider the gospel, as we consider a gift that we don't deserve yet receive freely, that should stir something up in our soul. Just reflect on the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day and behold a greater glory. When we grasp the gospel, we should overflow with praise. It's a bold and deserving claim to say that all glory belongs to God alone. Think about that. Paul's writing from prison in Rome. So by saying all glory to God is saying not all glory to Caesar. Not all glory to Rome. And in our lives, by, that's a bold claim, which sometimes falls out of our mouth easily, saying glory to God. But by saying that, saying we are attributing ultimate worth, all glory to God, and not to these other things in my life. Not to that sin I refuse to kill. Not to that good thing that I've made a God thing. All glory belongs to God alone. Let's take seriously that statement, that proclamation. And we see that Paul ends his prayer with amen. And so to say amen doesn't just mean I agree. It means I agree, but it means let it be so. And we may never here at HGC have a culture of dozens of amens being thrown up during the sermon, and I'm okay with that. You know, I'll, I'll get, yeah. <laughs> you know, but if we never get there, that's okay. But I do think it's an important thing to acknowledge that when we say amen, we are saying, let it be so. Amen means something, and it means something significant. It's not merely a tradition, and it's really not something that should be mumbled. It doesn't have to be shouted, but it needs to be sincere. And so corporately, as we pray together, and as we consider the glorious gospel that saves and transforms, and as we say bold things like all glory be to Christ, we need to respond with let it be so. Amen. Our verbal affirmation of let it be so is a significant way that we participate in our corporate worship. And so church, we exist to glorify God. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. As Christ's church, we exist to glorify God by showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? We exist to glorify God by showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. Pray that that would be true for us. That we would bow our lives to God figuratively and sometimes literally, that we would come with humble yet bold petitions, that he would give us strength to comprehend with all the saints Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. And we can trust him. He can do more than we can ask or think. He is worthy of all praise in the church, in Christ forever. All glory be to Christ. Amen? All glory be to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. You deserve all glory, yet our lives are so counter to that. God, we ask for your help that we would comprehend Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. 
that this glorious gospel that saves and transforms, that is beyond us, would be more than intellectual assent, but would be heart-changing, life-transforming, good news for all people. Again, Lord, we worship you. And as we reflect on Christ's death and sacrifice on our behalf as we share in the Lord's Supper, would you work in our hearts to comprehend the richness of this good news that is beyond understanding. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.